Hello and welcome to another episode of Cast It Into the Fire podcast. I'm on today with a guest, Sam. Hey. And we're going to be starting the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The whole giant doors topper thing. Um, Yeah, we're actually both using an edition where it's all three books into one. Keeps things a little simpler. Well... Anyway, this is the sequel to The Hobbit, which turned into a much larger thing than The Hobbit ever was by far. Um, I actually believe it was originally going to be a shorter book than The Hobbit even was. I believe so. I think it was just an expansion. Yeah. Well, anyway... Yeah, I believe that is the case. It begins with uh, the poem about the ring, which you've pro- you've heard part of it if you've ever seen the films. That this is the whole thing in full. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky. Seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the Dark Lord on his dark throne. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. That's it. I like it. It's a little ominous. Yep. Um... Uh, different editions may have um, different stuff at the beginning, and I'm not going to go over every bit of it. And there's a note on the text which um, it actually goes into certain things that Tolkien disagreed with early publishers on the grammar. It has the spellings of certain words that um, he had his own opinions about, and you know what, he's talking, he can do what he wants. Um, He actually helped write one of the sections of the dictionary, in fact. Now, these words were dwarves to dwarfs, elvish to elfish, further to farther, nasturtiums to nasturtiums, try and say to to try to say, and elven to elfin. Now, regarding the change for the F to the V, um, Tolkien changed the stuff within his own work to distinguish his characters from sillier, like, fairy tale elves and the kind of dwarves that would show up in Snow White. Like, oh, those are dwarfs. His more serious creations that are meant to be more, like, mythological dwarves. And elves with a V. 
And I don't know why the difference with the um, Nasturtian spelled with an N. But it, might be an, it might be in English to uh, American spelling. It might be. I, I'm not sure. I don't think it is. It's kind of a gray versus gray thing. Uh, those are the yellow flowers growing outside Bilbo's hobbit hole. And there's more about, um, you know, what medium Tolkien used to write with and, um, other such things. And I'm not going to go into full detail about that because I think you'd like to get to the more interesting stuff. Um... Uh, there's also a forward uh, about I mean, it's like Tolkien's intentions with writing it. I actually yeah. uh, like this part the most. Yeah. Out of it, like I I don't mind the Hobbit stuff, but I actually like that he kind of talks about how he does. This is where the famous quote about uh, what's that called? Uh, uh, like uh, the allegory versus allegory. applicability. Yeah, and he talks about yeah, this wasn't the war. This wasn't about World War One. This wasn't about World War Two. And I believe the real world does not resemble the legendary war in the process or its conclusion. If it had been inspired or directed to development, the legend there certainly would have been a ring, would have been seized and used against Sauron. He would not have been annihilated, but enslaved. And Barador would not have been destroyed, but occupied. Saruman failing to get position of, and would in confusion and treacheries of the time found, in Mordor the missing links to his own researches in war long before he would have made a great ring of his own, which challenges the self-styled ruler of the the conflict. Both sides would have held hobbits with hatred and contempt. They would not have long survived, even as slaves. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, I I always find that interesting. I've seen other people's interpretations of Tolkien's work and newer stuff, which I find, well, kind of cynical, actually kind of works in that kind of sense. But uh, I do actually like that idea where it's like, yeah, it could be, like, geopolitically realistic, but, you know, it's not. It's about, like, Elves inspired, like, by biblical lore and, you know, weird little people in holes. <laughs> oh, yeah, Tolkien had a dislike for allegory, and so his work was not written as an allegory about the war or politics, you know, even if there are certain themes present in there anyway. It's not meant to refer to anything going on at the time. It's not a religious allegory, even though Tolkien was a serious Catholic. It's meant to be a good story, and if you, it personally reminds you of something, you know, that's where the applicability comes in. Yeah, I mean, there's themes. There are themes, but it's not... 
a theme. The story, how do I put it? The themes are in there and they're important, but it's not solely about the themes. He wanted to write about a world. It was language was more important to him than thematics. And you know, there's some things in here that have you know reminded me of various you know Bible Christianity related things, but you know that's my interpretation. It doesn't mean that this is Narnia. Uh, Yeah, there's more about how like an unpleasant character later in this book who was a miller is not connected with a mill in Tolkien's time and the miller who ran it you know, despite any suggestions. So, yeah, even though these books have been compared to various political causes over the years, that's the applicability again, maybe. So anyway, on to the book itself. There's a prologue, pretty long. It starts with the concerning hobbits, and it's explaining hobbits. Now, if if you're listening to this, you probably already know what a hobbit is. The little people. Little hairy people, feet. hairy feet. They have live in pastoral. All uh, shapes or something. I don't know. <laughs> some some weirdos like. I don't know. It feels a little... I mean, I like ethnologies and stuff like that. And this isn't really a complaint. I just... I always get, like, some man of Gondor waddling around someday, like, in the future, measuring their skulls. And, like, ah, this is where they all come from. The hobbit feet are, you know... These hobbits by the river have, you know, slightly longer feet. And that means they're a matriarchy. Uh, like it explains that they they're unobtrusive. They don't really do technology fancier than a forge bellows or a loom or a mill. They're quick of hearing, hearing the sharp eyed. They don't actually study or possess what you would call magic. So yeah, they're not leprechauns. Uh, they are good at being quiet and you know getting out of the way of big blundering uh pig people going past yeah, big people, but yeah, same difference yeah. Really to hobbits. <laughs> they're smaller than dwarves, less stout and stocky, but not actually a whole lot shorter. They got a variable height ranging between two and four feet of our measure, and they now seldom reach three feet because they've dwindled. But in ancient days, they were taller. So that's the uh, opposite of what they did with the animated Return of the King. It's just got taller and merged in with humans. And 
the tallest hobbit on record except for two famous characters of old who will be later dealt with in this book was Banderbrass Bolvor Took, son of Isambras the Third, and he was four foot five and was able to ride a horse. Um stuff about their having curly hair on their feet. Very little in the way of shoemaking practiced among them. But they're making other useful and comely things. Good natured rather than beautiful. Broad, bright eyed, red cheek with mouths apt to laughter and to eating and drinking. And they're fond of simple jests. Eat six meals a day when they can get them. And they're hospitable and they like parties and presents and they give them away and accept them eagerly. And that uh, hobbits are relatives of humans. They're more closely related to humans than to elves or even to dwarves. And they spoke the languages of men in their own way and liked and disliked about the same things. And their beginning lies in the elder days that was now lost and forgotten. And only the elves preserved any records and of that time and they weren't really bothering with histories other than their own. Yeah, Tolkien never actually said who created the Hobbits. I mean, were they were created by Eru along with the uh, I don't know, maybe they just the dwarves were their the own ground. thing. <laughs> maybe they popped out of the ground with the dwarves. Yeah, stuff about the land being changed since those days, since it's now the third age of Middle Earth. They've got a first age, a second age, a third age, and by the time this book is over, it's supposed to be the fourth age. Well, isn't it all supposed to be, like, a book written, like, ten years after or something? Or, like, a hundred years later? It's kind of just a narrative history? Yeah. Well, not that far after, but yes. And... Their earliest tales credit them with living in the upper vales of the Anduin between the eaves of Queenwood the Great and the Misty Mountains. So, if you were with us for doing The Hobbit, or if you've read The Hobbit on your own, like, after Bilbo leaves the Misty Mountains and he's on the other side and where, like, Bjorn is and there's a river and they cross it, Maybe a bit further north from there, but uh, that's where, or maybe in that region, that's roughly where they are, the hobbits starting out. And before the hobbits crossed over the mountains, there were already three different breeds of them. Yeah, Tolkien said breeds. It's awkward. The har- I mean, that's kind of an old thing. It's not even like... And that's not even like... I mean, I'm sure we'll end up talking about it in older and later episodes, but it's... That's, you know, Tolkien's an old English guy who's actually pretty progressive or whatever most of the time. Like, for, you know, an old Catholic, you know, 
pretty conservative uh, English man at the peak of their times, but... So they were the Harfoots, the Stores, and the Fallowhides, and the Harfoots are described as browner of skin, smaller and shorter, and they were beardless and bootless, and their hands and feet were neat and nimble, and they preferred highlands and hillsides. The Stores are described as broader, heavier in build, and their feet and hands were larger, and they preferred flatlands and riversides. And the Fallowhides were fairer of skin and also of hair, and they were taller and slimmer than the others. They were lovers of trees and of woodlands. Yeah, that almost sounds a little bit like they're a bit elvish. Maybe. And the Harfoots had a lot to do with dwarves in ancient times. They lived in the foothills, and they moved westward early, and they roamed over Eriador as far as Weathertop, while the others were still in Wilderland, which, you know, like I said, the Vales of Hand do an area on the other side of the mountains. And they were the most normal and representative variety of Hobbit, and by far the most numerous. And they were the ones who were the most inclined to settle in one spot, and they were the longest to keep the custom of living in holes and tunnels. The stores lingered long by the banks of the Great River Anduin, and they were less shy of men, and they were they came west after the Harfoots, and they followed the course of the Loudwater, and they long dwelt between Tharbad and the borders of Dunlan before they moved north again. The Fallowhides were the least numerous, more northerly, more friendly with elves, more skill in language and song than in handicrafts, and preferred hunting to tilling, and they crossed the mountains north of Rivendell and came down the river Horwell. And in Eriador they soon mingled with the other hobbits and... They were bolder and more adventurous, so they tended to be leaders or chieftains among the clans of other varieties of hobbits. And by the time of Bilbo, there's still more of a fallow hide strain with the Tooks and the Masters of Buckland. So yeah, they still almost sound a little like they're uh, a bit elvish. Whether that means they're related at all or not. Maybe. I mean, is that even possible? Or... Maybe. <laughs> uh, I mean, you do live a long time. And... Yeah, this is the time that kings of men are coming out of Westerness over the sea. Actually, no, this was after that. The the kings from Westerness were dwindling. And there was a lot of room in the Shire for newcomers, so the hobbits are moving there and doing well. And they're learning to write so the language is expanding and they started counting history and years and they'd counted 1601st year of the third age that the Fallowhide brothers Marcho and Blanco had set out from Bree and they'd obtained permission from the High King at Fornost and they crossed the 
River Berendouin, which later became called the Brandywine. And they crossed over the bridge and they took the land beyond to dwell in and Would you say they were kind of the ones who founded living in the Shire officially, or? Probably. Yeah, something like that. I think it's probably, like, mostly them and maybe a few others. And I should probably mention that the King of Fornost would be considered part of Gondor, even though it's northerly. They got a North Kingdom and a South Kingdom that are, um... Ruled by the same uh, people from the same kindred, you'd say. Uh, to the last battle at Fornost, which was with the Witch King of Angmar, the hobbits actually sent some bowmen to fight because they were officially under that king of. Uh, Fornost. And who was he of? North Kingdoms, North Downs. Related to the King of Gondor. Makes sense. But that war, the North Kingdom ended. And... It doesn't say what happened with the hobbit bowmen that went there. I have a feeling most of them didn't come back. Um, They had the Dark Plague after that. By a thousand years after that. And after they're hit hard by the Dark Plague, they get the Days of Darth. So Hobbit's getting plague and famine. I mean, well, you wonder why. The, you can kind of get why they isolate so hard. But this is long past by the time this story starts and the Shire is plentiful again and um, the Hobbits are numerous. Uh, this talk of the dimensions of the Shire. So it starts at the... From the far downs to the Brandywine Bridge. And from the northern moors to the marshes in the south. And the hobbits called it the Shire. And it's under the authority of their thane. And they got well-ordered business and... They have a government. I thought it was like a... Kinda. It's more I thought, like... I thought it was just like crappy local town stuff. Like it pretty much is. Like, their rulers are more like, oh, we're mayors of, like, local towns. And even their sheriffs, their law enforcement are like, oh, yeah, we we found a strike. How we're going to return it. Makes sense. They don't really have much in the way of crime besides, you know, petty spoon theft. Mm. <laughs> Um, stuff about how the hobbits are curiously tough despite the easy life and the peace 
the difficult to daunt or to kill. And despite being unwearyingly fond of good things, they can survive rough handling, grief, foe, and weather surprisingly well. Slow to quarrel for sport, killing nothing that lived. Doty at bay, and at need could still handle arms. They shot well with the bow, keen-eyed and short at the mark, and also good at throwing rocks. Nice. Yeah. More descriptions of Shire Dimensions. Um, there's actually a map in this book, so... You know, you could go ahead and look at that, or it's all over online, too. Um, and these maps, they're all drawn by Tolkien. They're really nice. Depending on the edition, if you have one of the books that it's divided into, like, three separate books, most likely all three of them will have the map. Hmm. With it all in one book, you're going to find the map in the back. Yeah. Really detailed, nice looking map. Mm. Uh, some stuff about how some of them have actually begun building farmhouses and barns and not just in holes, especially done by the Marish and the Brandywine. Um, some of the hobbits at um, this area, the East Farthing, are. Rather large and heavy-legged, and they wore dwarf boots in muddy weather. Wearing boots, the scandal. (laughs) (laughs) Not boots. Oh, and some of them can even grow a little bit of a beard. So they're related to the stores, because none of the Harfoots or Fallowhides can grow a beard at all. Um, stuff about there being three elf towers that had been there a long time in the Tower Hills at the Western Marches. And yeah, beyond that, you got the Arid Luin, the Blue Mountains, and then it's the sea, and hobbits are afraid of the sea for some reason. It's actually a word of fear among them and a token of death. more about them building hobbit holes called smiles and their houses that were built in kind of a similar way even if it's above ground and they thatch the roofs with straw Hobbit architecture, having the round doors. Now they're into genealogical family trees. It's not like there's because, much else to do. That's because Tolkien's into that. I go ahead, look at the back of the book. It's full of them. Yep. Now on to concerning pipeweed. 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 
the astonishing habit of the hobbits that... I think it's more of a tobacco than marijuana. But yeah, they yeah. have pipes of clay or wood with the burning leaves of a herb which they call pipe weed or pipe weed or leaf, a variety probably of nicotinia. Probably. Probably. And there's a great deal of mystery about the origin. You don't know when hobbits first begin to smoke. But Tobald Hornblower, or old Toby, is credited with the first growing the true pipeweed. And he may have gotten it from Bree. And Bree was a real crossroads with a lot of um, folk from all over the place, including rangers and wizards. So it's still a mystery where the pipeweed, whatever it was, first was grown. And it now grows in especially well in warm, sheltered places like Longbottom and the men of Gondor call it sweet galenas and esteem it only for the fragrance of its flowers. Yeah, that sounds kind of more like tobacco than weed. Yeah. Sounds it. Um, more on the order of the Shire, which we already talked about this somehow. They're officially were under the High King at Fornost, but there isn't any High King of Fornost anymore, and the Thanes, and they have, who was the master of the Shire Moot, and captain of the Shire Muster, and the Hobbitry in Arms, which is held in times of emergency, which doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, the Shire's just kind of a forgotten place. No one remembers it except Gandalf and probably a few other people nearby. So that's why we're still around. I mean... Yep. Barely defended. Nice agricultural land full of really small people. Surviving in... A place like Middle Earth. I mean, yeah... It being forgotten is very much in its favor. The only uh, real official in the Shire at this time was the mayor of Mitchell Delving, or of the Shire. He's elected every seven years at the free fair on the White Downs at the Lith, that is at midsummer. And the mayor's duty is to preside at banquets and, Basically you know, just do ceremonial stuff. Yeah. And more about the sheriffs, which, you know, as I said, they're they're more catching stray animals and um at most they have bounders at the um borders to see the outsiders don't make themselves a nuisance. Although, as you'll find later, the borders are kind of more protected by others that even the bounders don't even know about, so. Yeah, easy job. At least, uh, so far. 
But at the time of the story, the boundaries have greatly increased because there are many reports of strange persons and creatures prowling about the borders or over them. And it's a sign that you know, something's going on. Yeah, apparently. Um, there's a part four of the prologue of the finding of the ring, and it explains all the stuff from The Hobbit, you know, that you already know if you've read it, about Bilbo and the dwarves going over the Misty Mountains and Bilbo getting lost and encountering Gollum, his riddle game, finding out what the ring does. And I don't think there's really much to say here, but Gandalf didn't believe Bilbo's uh, first story about having won the ring. And he was very curious about it. And he eventually got the true tale out of Bilbo after a lot of questioning. And it strained their friendship for a while. But Gandalf seemed to think this was important. And he didn't say so to Bilbo. But he was concerned that Bilbo had not told him the truth the first time because that's not like him. And that made Gandalf even more suspicious that something was wrong about the ring. Yeah. And also the whole birthday present thing from Gollum. Yes, but that'll be explained in a later Yeah. Chapter. And mm-hmm. also this recalls back when the early edition of The Hobbit that you can't find anymore. Gollum actually gave the ring to Bilbo willingly after having lost at the riddle game. And... Yeah, that doesn't exactly do consistency-wise, so he rewrote it, took out some references that didn't fit in, like a reference to China. There's no China in Middle-earth. Nope. So, the first edition is Bilbo's uh, untruthful version of it, and then the current edition you can get at any bookstore is the revised one that more reflects a more in-character Gollum. And there's a note on Shire Records... Both The Hobbit and later uh, this book would, to them, like if it was real, it would be in something called the Red Book of Westmarch, which was their record of history of the Third Age that The Hobbits kept writing down in. And it started out as Bilbo's private diary, which he took with him and later was taken by Frodo. 
You got anything more you want to say about the prologue? No, I'm, I'm curious to get into the book further. Yeah. Both the prologue and the appendix, yeah, they're full of background information about Middle-earth at the time, but they don't contain the story itself. And a lot of people would probably start reading in between those and skip them entirely. But... Uh, for some reason, I thought the explanation of the Shire's calendar was in this part. I'll get to that when we get to it. Oh yeah, we're looking forward to getting into the Lord of the Rings properly and... We'll be starting off with the Fellowship of the Ring, the first part. And the long-expected party of Bilbo Baggins. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting. Yeah. And there you go, right before you actually start that, there's that map of um, what areas are covered of the Shire. So, yeah, take a look at that if you want a like, better understanding of the places talked about in the forward. Yeah, thanks for uh, listening to Castings the Fire podcast. Have a great evening. Goodbye.